Well, beloved, as the band's coming down, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And uh, let's stand together, and we're going to read this morning from Romans chapter 12. I originally was going to just read through verse 3, but I want to read us all the way through verse 8. Let's read all the way through verse 8 just to get the entire context, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll dig into this word this morning. This is, this is the Word of God. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are worthy to be exalted and worshiped and adored you are our creator you are the one who has sustained our lives you are the one who by your grace for those of us who can call you father you're the one lord who has predestined the entirety of our lives you're the one that has given to us effectual calling You're the one that has regenerated our hearts and given to us faith to believe in Christ. You are the one who has justified us in your own sight. You are the one who promises to glorify us with you in the future. Lord, you are the one in whom we live and we move and we have our being. You alone. And you are worthy to be praised. And Lord Jesus, you are for us, you're our Savior. You're our Redeemer. You are our elder brother. You are, you know, an heir, the heir of all things, and you have made us your joint heirs. You are our life and our hope. You're our Lord. And you have given to us such an incredible example of humility, an awesome example of humility that we desperately need to see. Lord God, as we... As we study your word this morning and as we embrace, as we, I mean, as we just embrace and, and exposit this word this morning, as we get into verse 3 of this chapter of Romans, Lord, I pray that we would take very seriously these words that we're about to hear. And I pray that they would actually have real transforming power in our lives. I pray that you would come and that you would convict us of pride, and that you would encourage and exhort in us humility, and that you would do the heart work in us that is necessary for that to take place. 
Lord, I, I cannot accomplish any of those things in my own strength at all. I'm praying to You that You will fill me with Your Holy Spirit, that You will give me the unction of the Spirit of God, that You will strengthen me by Your Holy Spirit, that, Father, the words that I, everything that I've studied this week would, you know, it would, everything would just lead to a faithful exposition of Your Word. And I pray for this, my brothers and sisters in this room, that, Father, our hearts would be freshly affected by the truth. I pray that we would be compelled to listen. I pray, Lord God, that there would be an earnest desire in every soul here this morning that belongs to Christ. There would be this earnest desire, not merely to hear Your Word, but, Lord God, to do it. As Jake prayed, I pray that we would not shy away from conviction, that we'd embrace it. It's a good thing. And that conviction would lead to repentance. And that repentance would lead to fruit in our lives that remains and that brings praise to You. Lord, help us as a church, Father, to be refined by the very words that we hear this morning so that we might be more pleasing in Your sight, so that we might honor You more greatly and, 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 and more completely than we do right now. Be glorified in the preaching of Your Word, I pray. And exalt Christ before our eyes, I ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I was studying for this text this week, beloved, I remember I remembered the words of William Bennett several years ago when they were in the, when, you know when when he was in the process of, of trying to crack down on pornography, and he said, "You know, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it." And I think that's true of pride. It's kind of hard to define altogether, but you know it when you see it, don't you? Don't you? No, none of you do. Sure you do. You know exactly what it is. You know, as we've been studying these last couple of weeks, Paul has been making the transition, the necessary transition from didactic teaching, right? From the theology-laden and the doctrinally rich portion of his epistle to the Romans to now the application of that doctrine, right? From his incomparable Holy Spirit-inspired exposition of the gospel to the application of that truth to the individual and to the corporate life of a Christian, right? And it's absolutely necessary. Like, if Paul would have quit Romans at the end of chapter 11, it would have been a great theological treatise, right? But that's as far as it would have gone. Theology, just for theology's sake, isn't worth anything. Oh, I can't believe you're saying that, preacher. I'm just saying. Just knowing theology is worthless. It's worthless unless it's applied to your life. Right? It's worthless unless... That theology actually informs and transforms who you are. Isn't that true? Otherwise, all your study of theology is just puffing up your knowledge. Theology is meant to be applied. And Paul started this transition, you'll remember, back in verse 1. Look at it again with me. Paul says, I appeal appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, right? He said, okay, I want you guys to understand this. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. In light of this great theology, in light of all these mercies 
the multiple mercies, the immense mercies of the gospel that you and I have received, right? These great treasures, the sovereign love of God displayed in His giving the Lord Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins and everything that comes out of that, right? The, 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 the knowledge of God's electing love and effectual calling, the justification and reconciliation with God, union with Christ, adoption into the family, you know, the promise of God's pre- preserving grace and the certainty of glorification with the Lord. And let all those things, here's the first thing that theology must do in us. We need to surrender every single thought we might have of any right to ourselves, of any right to autonomy, of any right to self-determination. And we must present ourselves to God, body and soul, as a living sacrifice, as an act of whole life worship for the praise of His glory. In fact, Paul says, it is the only reasonable, it is the only rational thing to do. It's your spiritual worship. It's a non-negotiable. This is what a Christian does. Why? Because our bodies are His. Why? Because they've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything that we are, our lives, purchased by the precious blood of Christ, right? And then the second thing he says is this, don't be conformed to this world. But be, re, be, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says the second non-negotiable of your life is this, is that you can no longer be pressed into the mold, squeezed into the mold, pressed in by the way that the world thinks in order to live in the way that the world lives. You can't do that anymore. You can't be a Christian and live in a way... In the way that the world that does not know God lives. You can't do it. Instead, you are called to conform your life to the will of God. To obey God. To live in a manner that brings pleasure to the living God. And you will discover, you will discern, you will come to realize that the word, the, the will of God is good and it is well-pleasing. That's what the word acceptable means. And it is perfect. It is, it is, it is what is designed to make you complete. And the way that you do that, the way that you do that is by the renewal of your minds through the word of God. It's by taking in and and meditating upon and living according to, by the Holy Spirit's power, the commands of the Word of God. You are to resist and conquer the way that this world thinks, this world that's under the sway of Satan, this world that is under the power of the prince, uh, uh, under the prince of the power of the air. You're to to have your mind and your, your thought changed. Through hearing the preaching of the Word of God, through your personal and systematic study and reading of the Word of God, through Bible studies and Sunday school, through singing doctrinally correct songs, through biblically faithful discussions and conversations, through books that are written by God-fearing theologians and pastors, you immerse yourself in the Word of God, and here's what happens. Your minds are renewed. How you think, what you know, what you hold with certainty, what you believe is renewed, and that shapes who you are. It shapes the way you think. It shapes the way you act. It shapes how you live. How you think and what you know determines what you believe, and what you believe determines how you live, right? Right? Axiomatic truth. 
Now this morning, starting in verse 3, Paul is going to describe for us the essential need that we have for humility. For killing pride and fostering a, a humble heart for the good of the church and for the good of the lost world and for the glory of God. He says, for by the grace that's given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's the deal, beloved. Paul knows that we live in a world that is engulfed in pride, isn't it? We live in a world that is engulfed in pride, that promotes pride, that promotes self-exaltation, that promotes self-expression, that promotes the individual. And as a new new creation in Christ, we are not to live like the rest of the world. Not only are we not to be conformed to their ever-pressing need to magnify their pride, but we need to be very careful even as those who have received the grace of God. You know why? Because Paul also knows that grace, if we're not vigilant, can lead to pride. It shouldn't, but it can. And pride is an abomination to God. Unchecked, unrepentant pride will undermine and destroy the divine design for the church. And that is what is of primary concern and importance to Paul. Consider where Paul's going to take us in, in, in this you know, in this paragraph, he's going to talk to us about the church as one body with many members. We read it, right? In fact, just look for it again. Let your eyes fall in verses 6 through 8 again. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now he talks about all these ways, all these gifts that he gives to us in the body of Christ. That each of us is here, we're in the body of Christ, if we're truly saved people, we are here for a purpose within this body. But here's the thing. Beloved, we'll never bless and serve one another. We'll never use the gifts that God has given to us for the edification of the church rather than for our own self, you know, exaltation and for the praise of God's glory until we learn to reject and put to death the pride that is native to fallen humanity. The pride that each one of us by nature has until we learn to embrace humility. In fact, I find it very telling. I find it very interesting that immediately after commanding us to pursue a renewed mind, Paul then commands to us as the first thing that we ought to do as in, in, in cultivating this renewed mind is that we should have a proper estimation of ourselves. The very first place that our mind needs to be renewed is regarding us. It's regarding us. So let's see how he does this. Let's see how he points to this essential need for humility. First, I want you to notice this, that Paul's command stems from his own understanding of the grace that he himself has received and how that grace, therefore, demands humility. Look at it. First part of verse 3 again. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. 
He's grounding everything that he's going to say in the grace that has been given to him, in the grace that he has received. Now, when we look at that, we need to understand what grace is he talking about here, right? Now, certainly the first thought we would have, well, he's talking about this grace that he's received to be an apostle. That, that because he's, he's speaking out of his position as an apostle, right? As one sent by God authoritatively to speak on behalf of God, to be an ambassador for King Jesus, And so what we've got to see right away is that what he's telling us here is not just a suggestion. It is not just, you know, some recommendation. It is not, this is the more excellent Christian life, but you don't really need to do this if you don't want to. No, what he's saying here, beloved, what he's giving us is an apostolic command that carries the weight and the authority of Almighty God. In other words, if you ignore Paul's directive here, if you ignore his commands here, you are disobeying God. Okay? With me? But then there's a second thing here. And the second thing here is this. Is that it's true that Paul received the grace of apostleship before, but before he ever received that grace of apostleship, the grace that Paul first received was what? It was the grace of redemption. It was the grace of salvation. It was the grace of God gripping him and grabbing him and pulling him out of the pit of destruction. It was Jesus Christ, Almighty God, showing up to him on the road to Damascus and casting him down from his high horse, quite literally. And compelling him to submit and to believe in him as sovereign Lord. He knew how great God's grace had been to him. He knew what a religious wretch he was. The gravity of his sin and the judgment from which he had been mercifully delivered. He knew the amazing grace that saved his soul and then the abundant grace that made him an apostle. And he knew that the ministry that had been, had been given to him, had been entrusted to him, was entirely of grace. It had to be. He certainly didn't deserve it. This was a man who said with sincerity of heart, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15.9 That's not one you ever lived down, is it? He's the one who said, I am nothing. I am nothing, 2 Corinthians 12, 11. He's the one who confessed this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, if Christ could save me, there's nobody He can't save. Now that's not false humility on Paul's part. That was the posture of his heart before God. And so I want us to see that when Paul is commanding to us that we, that we rightly evaluate ourselves, in other words, that we, that we pursue humility, he does so as an apostle who, yes, is speaking authoritatively on behalf of God, but also as one who has experienced the grace of God as a fellow brother who has been humbled by the grace of God to him, an unworthy sinner who has humbly committed himself to God now, saying, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want you to hear that. Paul is saying, I don't account my life of anybody. I don't care about my life. I'm not about maximizing my life. I'm not about making myself appear glorious to anybody. I don't count my life of any value. I don't count it even as precious to myself. My only desire is that I would actually finish the course of the ministry that God has given to me so that I could testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't find anything in me. I find everything in Him. That's what he's saying. So it's from that basis. That's the heart of this apostle. It's from that basis that Paul gives us this command. Gives this command to everybody in the church in Rome and to every single one of us. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Look at, the, look at the words again. Look at the command. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, why does Paul need to say that? It's because we have a general tendency to do just that. Isn't it? Look, I'm just going to tell you, this is not going to be comfortable. Okay, this is not a comfortable sermon this morning. I apologize. Not really, but it's just not comfortable. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. That phrase is a single word in Greek. It means to have an unwarranted opinion of yourself. An unwarranted opinion of yourself. It means to be conceited. It means to be arrogant. It means to be proud. It means to have an exaggerated opinion of your importance or of your worth or of your abilities or of your, 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 you know, your, your ability to think, your, your brilliance, your mind. Like, it's just to think of yourself in a way that you have no right to think of yourself. Paul speaks so strongly because he wants to put pride to death immediately. Look, if we're going to live our lives for the glory of God, if we're going to benefit the body of Christ, if we're going to effectively proclaim the gospel and model its true work of transforming human lives, it's got to start with the death of our human pride. You can exalt Christ or you can exalt yourself but you can't do them both at the same time. Are you hearing me? you got to make a choice. Now you can understand why Paul would need to command us to repudiate the sin of pride. You know why? Again, it's the native sin of fallen humanity. And it's the mindset of our world. The mindset of our world is not to kill pride, but to foster it. In fact, here's the thing that is so ironic to me. I want you to think about this with me. Think about how ironic this is. Our world loves to cater to pride. Our, lo- our world desires to puff up people, right? We want to magnify people. We, we love to, to just to, to, to magnify pride, puff ourselves up. It's interesting to me that in our world, ironically, we see pride as a virtue as long as we have it. But it's something that we detest if someone else has. Isn't that true? At least too much of it. Like we will tolerate a little bit of pride as long as we're more prideful than that person is. But as soon as that person acts in a prideful way that's more prideful than our pride, they bug us. Like we can't stand the guy that always one-ups our stories, can we? Can we? You can't stand the guy that always one-ups what you have. You can't stand the guy that always has, you know, the greater experience. Oh, you did that? Well, let me tell you about what I did. Right? Nobody can stand that. And yet our world pushes it. Satan delights in puffing people up with pride. 
Our world is immersed in it. I want you to think about it with me. So much of psychology and the self-help industry is about what? Self-esteem, isn't it? Not human dignity. Not human dignity, which we should have, but self-esteem. And I want to say this. Human dignity and self-esteem are not the same thing. Human dignity, understanding that you have been created in the image of God, and so therefore you ought to comport yourself in that way. That's human dignity. Self-esteem is feel good about yourself no matter what. So much of the educational system, so much of our advertising industry, so much of higher academia and social movements cater to human pride, to puff people up, to, to, to build up and, and, and to inflate their egos. You ever think about it? Little is ever said of humility in diversity seminars. Is it? Little is spoken of humility in valedictorian, valedictorian speeches or in campus meetings. It's never listed among core values. Ours is the era of hyper-individuality and selfishness, of social media self-promotion, of flash and of hype, of not only, listen, the touchdown dance, right? But the first down flex. Like you got a first down, so what? And guys get up and act like they've just conquered the world. This is a day of, 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 of pride days and pride marches for which, for the things for which God calls an abomination of touting how progressive we are, how unstoppable is the human spirit. We long to be acknowledged for our greatness. We long to be acknowledged for how wonderful we are. And that's why so much of the false teaching in the false churches today is so man-centered and man-exalting and man-magnifying and pride-feeding and sin-ignoring and Christ-minimizing and God's glory and God's holiness disregarding. It's because they have a ready-made audience for such a false gospel that puffs up pride. We are living in a world that is immersed in pride. Even self-pity, self-degradation, is really a form of pride. It's the longing to be recognized for my suffering. It's the longing to you know, be recognized for the bad breaks that I've endured. It's the longing to be acknowledged for not having the place and the standing that we believe we ought to have. Think about the false humility that we so often encounter with people. It's going to ring true with you. Somebody says to you, well, I'm not very smart. I'm not, you know, I'm not very pretty. I'm not very handsome. I'm just not very athletic, right? Whatever. What are you expected to say? Oh, no, 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 you are pretty. Oh, no, you are. You are really handsome. Oh, no, you're, you're, you know, you just need a little work. You are athletic. You're expected to respond in that way. Why do people say those kinds of things? And I'm not talking about little kids, you know, who need a fern. I'm talking about adults. Most often, not all the time, but most often, it's because they want you to affirm them and say the very opposite of what they're saying about themselves. And if you doubt that, just try this next time. Try agreeing with them. When somebody says, you know, I'm not very pretty, you say, you know what, you are ugly. But you have other good qualities. How do you think that's going to go over? How do you think that'll go over? They're going to get angry. Why? Not because they shouldn't get angry because you said, you're right, I'm agreeing with you, you're not pretty. They shouldn't get angry at that, but they do. You know why? Because in reality, they're angry because you just hurt their pride. Because you didn't say what they're expecting you to say back and make much of them. Beloved, pride is nothing more or nothing less than the idolatry of yourself. 
It's the idolatry of yourself. It's contending with God for supremacy and preeminence. It's replacing God at the center of all things with ourselves. The Dutch reformer, Wilhelmus Abrekel, said this about the sin of pride. He said, pride, this is so right on. He said, pride lifts up the heart and puffs it up with vain air. And a proud person in his own conceit wishes to be honored above others. This motivates him in all that he does. And it's the objective of his actions. If he achieves his objective, he is delighted. But if not, he becomes peevish and wrathful. By nature, man is a creature who aspires after glory, is proud and conceited, and has high thoughts of himself. He's motivated by self. He's focused on self and is desirous that everyone's end would be to esteem, honor, fear, serve, and obey him. That's replacing God. Jonathan Edwards described it in this way. Pride, he said, is the worst viper in the human heart. Pride is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace in a sweet communion with Christ. Pride is with the greatest difficulty rooted out. Pride is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all lusts. Pride often creeps, often creeps insensibly. That is, without your notice. Pride often creeps insensibly into the midst of religion, even sometimes under the disguise of humility itself. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That pride sneaks in under the disguise of humility itself. Think about that for a moment. It's kind of, it's kind of a difficult thing to roll around in your mind when you think about it. Like, look, it is possible. It is possible, isn't it? To pride ourselves on our confession of sin. To pride ourselves on our performance of our religious duties. To pride ourselves on the gifts and the talents that God has given to us. To pride ourselves on our humble service for the Lord. Or to congratulate ourselves for our brokenness. Can I tell you what? It's quite possible. And history is replete with examples of this. And I don't mean just history like 100 years ago. I mean history like today, five minutes ago. It is very possible to be well-grounded in God's Word and to be doctrinally and theologically sound and to seemingly energetically seek to serve God and be secretly prideful. But that's just how insidious the, the sin of pride is. The spirit of pride is the spirit of self. Self wants to be promoted. Self wants to be popular. Like me, like me. Self wants to be coddled. Self wants to be satisfied. Self wants to be recognized. It wants to be important. Self wants to be in charge. Self wants... To be seen in a certain light. Regarded in a certain way. Self wants to be exalted because pride loves self. And that's the thing. Pride can take a numerous, numerous forms. Like pride is a chameleon. But it's got only one end. And it's self-exaltation. It's to rob God of His legitimate glory at the center of all things. And it is to pursue self-glorification. Scripture has nothing good to say about pride. I've actually heard preachers try to stand up and say, well, you know, there are some redeeming things about pride. Bro, show me one in Scripture. 
Show me one without twisting it or reading it to me in the New Living Translation. Scripture has nothing good to say about pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride leads to destruction, man. Proverbs 16, 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Let's stop calling pride just a little sin. Let's call it what God calls it. God calls it an abomination. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 21.4 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isaiah 2.12 Or these words from Jeremiah chapter 50. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. In fact, looking at the New Testament... God's Word tells us that in the last days, pride will be one of the defining characteristics. Pride, or one of its derivatives, will be one of the defining characteristics of false Christians. In fact, I want you to see this with me. Turn to 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this. Verse 1. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, that's pride. Lovers of money, proud, self-explanatory. Arrogant, pride, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. What's the root of that? Pride, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. The person that you cannot come to an agreement with, that's pride. Slanderous, where's slander come from? Pride. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. That is what? Pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Wow. Pride seems like a pretty important thing, doesn't it? Pretty serious sin to be dealt with. Touching the touchstone of a lot of other sins. That's because it is. How many other ways could Paul have described the abomination of of pride? You know, it's no no wonder that the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You know what that says? That says God sets Himself in battle array against the proud. Now, I don't know about you, but the last place that I want to be is on the receiving end of the battle array of God. God hates pride. And pride in the world amongst unbelievers and rebels and haters of God, that's bad enough. But beloved, pride in the church is monstrous and it is repulsive. And you know why? It's because a prideful Christian, a prideful Christian ought to be a contradiction in terms. We gotta mercifully, I'm sorry, mercilessly 
hack pride to death in our lives. And here's why. Because a prideful Christian denies the very heart of the gospel and shows a profound ingratitude for the grace by which he is saved and the gospel that he professes. Pride in a believer gravely miscalculates the wickedness and consequences of his sin from which he's been saved. It severely undervalues the price of, 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 of his redemption. It grievously underestimates the gratitude he owes to God for his saving mercies and demonstrates that in reality, he has lost all sight of the God who has redeemed him. There is no way to view yourself as before the face of God, Coram Deo, every day, and persist in human pride. Pride destroys the unity of the fellowship believer, of believers. And God hates that. God hates that. Pride brings strife. It tears at the fabric of worship. It tears at, at, the, at the fabric of love and fellowship and of mutual submission and of gracious service in the church. It exalts itself. It magnifies itself. It calls attention to itself. And it obscures the Lord Jesus Christ. And it sows discord. A prideful person can't extend forgiveness nor receive it. A prideful person is stiff-necked and unable to be taught by the Word of God. A prideful person is unwilling to submit to anyone else in the body of Christ because they consider themselves superior to everybody. A prideful person is blind to his own sin, but he has Superman x-ray vision for everybody else's. Isn't that true? A prideful man can have a forest in his eye, but buddy, he can find that speck in yours. A prideful man or woman sees themselves as beyond any further need of God's grace. Because after all, all they really needed was a kickstart to get themselves going in the right direction. A prideful man or woman is self-consumed. They don't care about the body of Christ. All they care about is me and the three-foot circle around me. A prideful person is the source of all those sins. It's pride that is the source of all those sins at 2 Timothy Chapter 3 lists. Prideful man is proud in his riches and a prideful man is proud in his poverty. Prideful man is proud of the fact that he has eight degrees from various colleges. And the prideful man is also proud that I'm really intelligent and I never spent a day of my life in higher education. You see? It's not like pride has like one form which it takes it manifests itself in every heart pride in the christian pride in you and me not just christians in general you and me it needs to be put to death and that's why paul commands us to think of ourselves with sober judgment look what he says again just read the whole thing verse three for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Look what Paul's saying. 
saying, listen, don't be puffed up with pride, but instead, think with sober judgment about yourself. Evaluate yourself soberly. With a sane mind. With a right mind. With a, with a, with a clear mind. That's the idea there. Have a sane evaluation of yourself. And have a sane evaluation of yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, I want to talk about that for a second. Right off the top. Because this is a little bit confusing and it's been the source of some confusion among, you know, various preachers and theologians throughout the ages, okay? What does that mean? That each of us should think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? Well, some understand Paul to be saying that each one of us has a different degree, different amount, if you will, of faith that has been assigned to us by God. And so we need to evaluate ourselves in light of either the greater or the lesser degree of faith that we have been assigned. Some guys have preached it that way. Some of you may have heard it described in that way. But I think that's entirely erroneous, and I'll tell you why. Think about it like this. If we if we are to think with sober judgment in accordance with varying amounts or measurements of faith that each one of us has, then what we will end up with in the body of Christ is a confused judgment and varying conceptions of what humility constitutes before the living God, won't we? Won't we? Like, you've got greater faith than me, so you have a better understanding. I got lesser faith than you, so I got a lesser understanding. We end up with confusion, don't we? Don't we? Doesn't make any sense. Now, it's true that there is a gift of faith that Paul talks about that he describes in 1 Corinthians, right? A gift of faith that is in addition to saving faith. But that's not what's in view here. It's not something that one has that the other doesn't. That's not what in, is in view here. We need to understand what these words actually mean. The word for measure, first of all, is a word that describes a unit or a standard of measurement. A universal standard of measurement. Either measurement, either of length or of volume. And that's the key idea, that it's a universal standard. In other words, an inch is universally an inch, right? If I'm in America or South America, what? An inch is an inch, isn't it? Isn't it? When I leave the northern hemisphere and go to the southern hemisphere, you know, does a yardstick all of a sudden shrink? Of course not. Or a pound is universally a pound. You know, a pound of hamburger is not 12 ounces at Kroger, though it seems like it, nor, you know, then 16 ounces at Food Lion and then 9 ounces at Walmart. A pound is universally 16 ounces, right? So what Paul is saying is there's the universal measure by which every Christian must think about themselves. And then second... He tells us that that standard of measurement is faith. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an appositional genitive in the Greek. In other words, it tells us what the proper measure, the proper unit, the universal standard is. And that universal standard is faith. Then, third, the word that is translated and assigned as assigned is a word that means to give a particular function to something. To give a particular task to something or a purpose to something. And so what I understand Paul to be saying here is that you need to, we all need to, every one of us 
must think about ourselves according to the standard that God has assigned for just that purpose, our faith. That is, judgment according to the gospel. Are you with me? In other words, here's what Paul's saying. He's like, you know what? Here's what we need to do. You and I, we need to take a step away from the funhouse mirror that distorts our true vision of who we are. And we need to examine ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. We need to examine ourselves in the light of our faith and in light of the Gospel. In other words, humility, true humility, like here's the, here's the scale. we got abject pride on one hand, and then abject, you know, denigration and despair and, you know, gloom, despair, agony on me on the other side. And God is saying true humility is found not in swinging to one extreme or the other. Not in just swinging so far the pendulum as you can away from the extreme of pride. It's found in what the Word of God says about us. So then what's the gospel tell us about who we are in truth? Well, the gospel tells us that we have been given a new heart and that we are new creations in Christ. True? It tells us that though, that through the life and the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we have been forgiven for all of our sins. That we've been delivered from the wrath of God that stood against us for those sins. And we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. By faith, at the moment that we believed, right? It tells us that by regeneration and salvation, we have been reconciled to God. That we have been adopted into His family. That we can now live in a manner that pleases Him. That we can pursue holiness and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. We know from the Scripture that we have been given the privilege of prayer and communion with God so we can worship Him now in spirit and truth. We've got the promise of God's enduring love and that He's working all things together for our spiritual good. And because He is, we can never lose the salvation that He has given to us. We've been redeemed for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them to the praise of His glory. We've died to ourselves and been made alive to God in Christ. And now our role is to bring glory to God in all things, denying ourselves and magnifying Christ. Those are all great things, aren't they? Those are all wonderful things. But here's the deal. Not a single one of those things should be a source of boasting or pride. Not a single one of those things should be a source for self-exaltation and self-magnification. Not a single one of those things should be an occasion for us patting ourselves on the back and saying, I'm pretty awesome. Rather, they ought to foster a profound humility in each one of us. Because when we step back and we see how are those things true of me, we see that the only answer is God's grace and not anything that we earned think soberly about that paul says think soberly about the reality that who you are now everything you have you didn't earn it you didn't deserve it you didn't have it coming to you it was all entirely of god's grace Because the truth is, you and I, we had made ourselves repugnant and obscene before God. Obscene. Disgusting. Reprehensible. 
We'd made ourselves an abomination in God's eyes. We were wretched and worthless sinners. We were deserving of destruction and His unceasing wrath. We had defied the living God and treated Him with contempt and offended His holiness and broken His laws and transgressed His boundaries. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. And yet, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Everything you are, you owe to the grace of God. You didn't do anything to earn what you've been given. You earned the opposite. You didn't desire what you've been given. You desired the opposite. If you're a Christian, you've been given an extraordinary gift. Amazing grace. And there's no grounds for boasting. And it's no fuel for pride. And it's no source for self-congratulation. And by God, it is no warrant for false humility. The only proper response. The only proper response is unqualified and absolute humility well what is that put some teeth into that preacher what is humility you know what humility is it's very simple i've heard a lot of different definitions for humility here's here's the simplest definition for humility i think i've ever heard humility is nothing less than a right judgment of yourself in light of who god is Humility is nothing less than a right judgment of yourself in the light of who God is. That's what humility is. J.C. Ryle said that, you know, the root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, God and his infinite majesty and holiness, Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man can never be a proud man. In the Old Testament, humility describes somebody who's meek. Somebody, somebody who's under God's control. It describes somebody who is meek, who's not quick to defend himself, but who is a lion for God's glory. Moses, for instance. Humility is somebody who knows who God is and who he isn't. Who he himself is not. It's someone who doesn't seek his own glory, who doesn't promote himself, who doesn't seek to exalt himself, but who prostrates himself in the sight of God, who fears the Lord, who is in awe of His greatness, and who does not puff up himself. In the New Testament, the humble person is one who's got a poverty of spirit, who recognizes what a sinner he is in and of himself, who knows that in himself he is nothing. The humble one is the one who lowers himself. He's the one who willingly and gladly takes the place of a servant. You know, kind of like Jesus did in John 13. Kind of like Jesus did in His entire incarnation. He's the one who is little in His own eyes, but in whose eyes Christ is great. He's the one who submits to God and is dependent upon Him for everything. He's the one who counts others as greater than Himself. The humble man or woman 
has heard and received the words of Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Remember what he says? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Someone who's humble is the one who has learned to walk as his or her master walked. Listen again to these familiar words. You know them. You've heard these. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort from love, and there is, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and there is, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and behold on, behold, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want a master class in humility? Look at your Savior. In order that we might be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ had to lay aside the rights to His glory as God and humble Himself for our sake. And you know what? He willingly and He freely did so. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And He didn't have to be begged. He didn't have to be cajoled. He didn't have to be coaxed to do this. He chose to humble Himself. The Lord of life, the great I Am, the I Am, took on flesh and was humiliated and suffered for our souls. And in due time, He was exalted by God. And what Paul is saying to us is this. It's, it's this. is that the selflessness of the glorious Son of God ought to serve to humble us. His humble selflessness ought to serve to humble us and create within us a profoundly thankful and trusting and humble heart toward God and toward one another. And especially, especially in the church. In fact, beloved, you want to know what true humility looks like in the church? What, what, what it really looks like in the church? It looks like the one another's of the Bible. It looks like the one another's of the Bible. Humility is shown when we love one another. When we bear with one another. And gladly doing it. Not like bearing with one another, gritting our teeth and letting everybody know how patient we are and bearing with so and so. That's no virtue at all. Just a humble brag. Humility is manifested when we're at peace with one another, when we show hospitality to one another, when we honor one another. When we honor one another, not concerned that I get honored, but that we honor somebody else. When we receive one another, when we don't fight with one another, when we serve one another, when we don't envy one another when we admonish one another, when we greet one another, when we care for one another and bear the burdens one of another. Humility is shown when we forgive one another. 
When we're kind to one another, when we submit to one another, <laughs> when we don't lie to one another, we encourage each other to good works and we comfort one another. Humility is shown when we pray for one another. When we're like-minded with one another, when we don't hold a grudge against one another, when we highly esteem one another, when we have fellowship with one another, when we edify and teach one another, when we admonish and correct and instruct one another, when we do good to one another, when we exhort one another, when we confess our sins to one another, and minister spiritual gifts to one another because we understand that we're members one of another. Beloved, humility energizes all those things. And without it, a church, the unity in a church cannot exist in reality. Like without humility, there's no true unity in a church. There just isn't. Either there will be indifference toward one another that masquerades as unity, right? You just don't care enough about one another to even get stirred up in any way. Or there'll be strife and contention and envy. The promises, though, of humility are great. Proverbs 22, verse 4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. But these are my favorites. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's Isaiah 57.15 and then Isaiah 66.2 But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My word. You know, beloved, it may be that if you're finding that in your life that you're just not sensing the presence of God, that your heart seems dull and it desperately needs revived, that your spirit's flagging, it may be that the reason is because of pride. It may be that the issue is pride. Now, I know we usually want to find other things that are the reason for that, right? We want to find other reasons for why my, my heart is the way it is and I'm just not feeling it and I feel like I need to be revived and all these other things. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you. Perhaps it's your pride. Perhaps it's your pride that keeps the Lord from looking to you in this way. And from... Reviving the spirit, your spirit because you're not lowly. And reviving your heart because you're not contrite. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Well, what do you do? What do you do if that's you? How do you grow in humility? How does each one of us grow in humility? Now, why do I say it like that? Why am I saying, how does each one of us grow in humility? Why am I not saying, how does the church grow in humility? I'll tell you why. Because it's really easy for us to say, you know, people in the church need to be more humble. Church really needs to make a greater focus on pursuing humility. It's really easy to say until you think about it. 
We are the church. You and me together. We're the church. We're not talking about some faceless, nameless mass that needs to be more humble. We're talking about you and me. Humility is not something that that we can try hard and develop. It's not a skill that we can perfect. Humility is not like, you know, a vision quest that we can go pursue and lay hold of and bring back. Beloved, humility is an issue of the heart. There are no ten steps to humility. Do you you, you understand that? Like, people will be like, here's five or ten steps to humility. Do X, Y, and Z. But when you're doing that, you're thinking about yourself and how you can make yourself more humble, which is the very opposite of humility, isn't it? I'm thinking all about me. That's the problem. Right? How do we grow in humility? It's an issue of the heart. How do we get it? What's the source of it, beloved? The source, the fountainhead, the wellspring of humility is a deep understanding of the profound nature of God's grace to us in Christ. Christ loved us and He died for us and He forgave us. He accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made us joint heirs with Him when He owed us nothing. He treated us as worthy of His selfless sacrifice when we were not worthy of anything but His judgment. And if you want to grow in humility, stay at the foot of the cross. John Stott said, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. Now think about that. I am here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing. Your curse I'm suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death that I'm dying. Stott says nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Beloved, He's right. And it's there at the cross that we see the greatness of God's love that should create in us a true humility. Because it's there that I see that I'm a child of God, not because I'm better than anyone else, because in fact, I'm worse than a lot, than most. It's not because I'm better than anybody else. But because God has graciously chosen me as His own. It's what Christ has done. It's what Jesus has done. Not what I've I've done. It's His life. His death on the cross. His resurrection that makes me who I am. It's of God's mercy that we are not consumed. It's of God's love that we have been drawn to Christ. It's because of His everlasting arms that we are kept. It's by the faith that He imparts to us that we are saved. It's by Christ's blood that we are cleansed. It's by His righteousness that we are clothed. It's by His power that we are made strong. And it's by His might that we are sustained. It is all of Him and it's none of us. And so all of our pride and all of our boasting are excluded. Man, the problem, I think, is that we forget how utterly sinful, beloved, we really are. We say we believe in the depravity, total depravity, but do we really? 
Do we really believe in total depravity or do we believe, are we semi-Pelagians? Are we, are we those people that say, well, you know, we're really not as bad as we could have been. Like, I mean, we were messed up. Don't get me wrong. We had some issues about us, you know, but we still, I mean, there was a little something good in us. No, there was not. Nothing. Not a thing. There was no reason God should save you except His grace. There was no reason Jesus should pour out His life for you except His grace. As long as you think you're something, as long as you think you are something, Christ will never be everything. I remember hearing a story. I can't remember what old theologian it was. I wish I could remember. I'll find it later. If you're interested, I'll tell you, but... He was asking one of his friends, he said, I want you to help me, brother. I want you to pray with me. Pray with me that I would see myself as nothing before God. And his buddy said, I don't need to pray about that. Just take it by faith. You are nothing. You are nothing. Scripture says you are nothing without Him. Beloved, true humility is forged a clear vision of God. And with a biblically rich and abiding perspective on the cross and a true sense of our desperate condition and the awesome love of Christ for us. And if you don't sit by the cross, if you don't survey the wondrous cross, if you're not constantly saying to yourself, alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die for me? If you're not amazed by the wonder of His love, if you're not amazed by the wonder of His grace, you will simply not be able to combat pride in your life. You just won't. Deeply considering the cross and daily preaching to yourself the whole gospel is the greatest weapon that the Christian has against pride. Humility can only thrive, beloved, in the presence of God and in the atmosphere of the cross and of the gospel and reminding ourselves daily that we don't deserve the riches of God's grace and yet also reminding ourselves of His undeserved love and kindness and mercy to us. And when we do that, when we really get it, you know what that does? It has this amazing effect. It frees us. It, 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 it enables us to, to, to be freed from this incessant pursuit of pride, self-promotion and self-defense and self-propping you know, propping and all that other stuff. It liberates our souls from the need to try to make much of ourselves and rather to enjoy the fullness of God's gracious love to us in Christ who has made us from worthlessness something to Him of great value. His own bride. His own people. I don't have to seek value for myself if my only concern is, how does Christ value me? Well, I'm, his, I'm a member of His bride. I'm one of His children. It'll liberate our souls, to enjoy the fullness of God's gracious love to us in Christ, and it will make us love and serve the Lord and other people out of a deep humility and gratitude toward Him. Again, Wilhelmus Obrechel says to us, your name, as well as your relationship to the Lord Jesus, obligates you to humility. You are named Christian after the name of Christ. Your relationship to Him is that you are His bride upon whom He has set His love. The Lord Jesus was humble. The perfect example of humility. And love ought to motivate us to be conformed to Him. More so 
because he establishes himself as the example. And he commands us to follow him. Beloved, humility is hard work. It's not ten steps, five steps, six steps. If there's any steps, it's one. Sitting at the foot of the cross. Taking full measure of everything that Christ has done for you. Seeing God in His splendor, Christ in His glory, and seeing yourself as you were by nature apart from Him and all that He's done. Not because you were worthy, but in spite of your unworthiness. It can only be accomplished, humility, by the Holy Spirit exalting the Lord Jesus Christ more and more in our eyes, magnifying His humility and His steadfast love to do for us what He did when we were His enemies. And His sustaining grace even now. God's got to do it in us. Really create humility. He'll humble us for sure. If we strive against Him, He'll humble us for sure. But you know, He also delights to create humility in the hearts of His, and souls of His people as we meditate deeply and faithfully and honestly on the depth of His transforming grace and of His undeserved mercy to us. Pursue humility. Not because you're forced to by God. Why is it that we always wait for the discipline, the, heart, the heavy discipline of God before we respond? Are we really that dumb? Honestly, believe you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, and I'm in that group. You know, I, there are many times when it's like I wait until the discipline of the Lord is really heavy before I address something that He's been convicting me of all along. Why is it that we wait? Is it just because we're hard-headed? Maybe. Pursue humility. And let God grow that grace in your heart without severe discipline and for the praise of His glory. Let's pray together. Father, there is no greater example of humility in the Word of God than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as the church, we profess to be His bride. We profess to be His disciples, His learners. We are those that carry the name of Christian, a Christ one. Father, we proclaim to be in Him. And in truth, all of those things are true if we've truly saved people. So I pray that You would create in us a humility like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. A humility that is beautiful, that is purposeful, that is pleasing in your eyes. A humility that enables us to fulfill the one another's of Scripture and to be unified in one heart and one soul and one mind, not in a superficial way, but in a deeply profound and serious way lord i thank you for this word i pray that you would press it home to our hearts this morning i pray these things in christ's name amen